Podcasts aren't the future of radio. They're the present. You are about to listen to a ministry-approved podcast. For more great audio entertainment, visit ministryofpodcasts.com. And now, your feature presentation. by Audible. Go to paulthebookguy.com slash audible and get a free book just for signing up for a free trial. This is episode 008. Happy anniversary. This week we interview Andre Girard, the author of Fathers, a literary anthology, and we bring you a bunch of great books, audio books, audio dramas, all kinds of stuff. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everybody. We're back again for another week of books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. I'm Paul Alves. Paul the Book Guy. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Jager. Chris Jager. Yeah, so, yeah. I got an empty chair in the studio this week, Paul. That's right. Normally, we have uh, a third, but uh, it's... Greg the Book Guy, he didn't make the long climb up Book Mountain this week. That's, it's a long trek. Good reason, though. But he has a very good reason, Chris, doesn't he? Yes, he does. It's Greg and Candace's anniversary tomorrow, so mazel tov, kids, and uh, have fun tomorrow. That's right. Have a great happy anniversary, Candace and Greg, and uh, a hearty happy anniversary from the Paul the Book Guy. Yeah, best wishes from, uh, from all, the, all the production staff at uh, Book Mountain. All right. What are you reading this week, uh, Chris? We start every show, huh, with uh, what are you reading this week? I, oh, man, I hate making this the George R. R. Martin show, but <laughs> I finished Feast of Crows, and I carried right into uh, Dance with Dragons. So, <laughs> see, what's really unfair is to call, uh, call these separate books, I think. You know, th- this is just one giant story. Right, so, a bunch of like The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, if, much if, if you like have enough trees around, you should, you know, make one big book out of it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you have, yeah kind of book that comes with wheels and a little carrying handle to, to wheel it around with he could have just spent 20 years writing one book um and made a fortune when it came out but no <laughs> it's been you know released and you know what is it ultimately He's teasing be seven us books with the or future books as well and, and you're I'm, I'm looking in your face and it looks like i should just keep going through the series looks like you're happy where are you it. in it uh, i'm i'm still on the second one because okay. i've, I've fought the the urge to, to just sit in my room and, and read you know george r. r martin i have to do the but, same thing but it is definitely uh, i have to say like the characters only get better uh the plotting only gets more complicated and uh yeah the, the thrills and spills and chills just keep on rolling out from that series fantastic i, I i've uh, just started uh inkblot the novel yeah. by what johnson nagel inkblot yeah it's uh I, i'm gonna you know what i'm, I'm gonna leave it till next week I'll bring it to the table next week. Uh, I'll, I'll throw out. There's a copy in the Dropbox for you if you if you want to get into Sweet. it sometime. And uh, you know me in audio books though. No, no, I've got it, it's a. Uh, I believe there's an EPUB in, oh, in the Dropbox EPUB. for you. That's music there to my ears. Go. I got you covered. And <laughs> I, I, you've got a, a book for us. Fiction, fiction, fiction. I've got um, all this Huxley Brave New World. Did you read that one in high school, Paul? 
I did, I did, and, and it was so long ago that I could probably read it tomorrow and, uh, as if it was a fresh book. This is exactly uh, what I've come across. Um, I did not read this book in high school, but every, everybody that I know has, and the book regularly tops you know, science fiction fantasy lists. When they're published, uh, I saw it just recently on that NPR list again. Yeah, it was pretty high up, too. Yeah, it was. So I thought, you know what? Uh, I'm going to give it a shot. And so th- call this my, my high school uh, grade 12 literature uh, flashback recall for all our listeners. Nice. Uh, so the plot synopsis. We follow the fortunes of a, of a couple of characters in, the, in, a, in a futuristic world, uh, 19, oh, sorry, 2025. The world is rigidly controlled. Um, there's no individuality. Uh, there's no sort of freedom of thought. And the, uh, the characters uh, within the book are, are sort of feeling uncomfortable uh, with this. The main character, Helmholt, uh, goes on vacation and he uh, visits an Indian reserve in North America uh, where he visits uh, an ancient society as sort of we live today, uh, where, there is no, uh, where there is no rigid hierarchical control and, and the population is not controlled by chemicals. And uh, this is you know, a tourist attraction in the day. Right. Uh, he finds a descendant of his boss. So his boss, Helmholt, who's figures out that his boss left his girlfriend on the Indian reservation by accident you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> and this poor woman had a child. Uh, and, you know, having children in the modern world is strictly forbidden. The children are only genetically engineered. And in the modern world, nobody has mothers and fathers. So, so you he, kind of just go to a vending machine, you, put in your credit card? And... That's pretty much how it goes. Okay. So Helmholt takes this um, savage uh, back to the modern world, and then he's having trouble with his boss, right? So when he's called on at the carpet, and you know, they're talking about sending him into exile, he pulls out the illegitimate child. And this is his trump card, right? Now, the, the illegitimate child, now the savage, uh, becomes a, a sensation in this uh, futuristic world. Right. Because no one's ever seen anything like him. First of all, he has a mother. He has a father. Um, he thinks for himself. He's never been, you know, drugged into submission. So our savage, uh, John the Savage, removes himself from society. And he tries to live as a hermit in a, in a lighthouse on a point. In his seclusion, he reenacts a, a ritual that he remembers from the Indian village where he grew up, and it, it's, it's a self-flagellation ritual. Uh, so he you know, begins to beat himself in some sort of means of, of purging himself of this love-hate relationship in this you know, crazy world that, that he's ended up in. Right, so he, he can't handle it. Like, he can't he handle it. He's, can't he's handle losing the, his mind, yeah. yeah. Now, in the, in the ever-present uh, cameras uh, that, are, that you know, populate this world, it's, it's caught on TV, and it's broadcast to the, the, the population of the brave new world. Uh, and he becomes a media sensation again, and people flock to see so him. This, this could be the first uh, literary uh, mention of a reality show. This could be the first literary <laughs> mention of reality TV. <laughs> so, and I'd have to be drugged to watch reality TV, so this kind of all makes sense. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There are some shocking similarities to modern world. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, so the, the, a crowd, a massive crowd collects to watch him flagellate himself. Flagellate himself. And uh, on one particular occasion, this woman that he simultaneously loathes and loves, uh, you know, comes to see him. And he is so enraged, so possessed by the, by the rage that's consuming him, he attacks this woman. And the crowd doesn't do anything about it. The crowd itself uh, consumes itself in sort of an orgy of, of violence. He wakes up the next morning horrified with everything, and uh, from the perspective that we see, the crowd comes back to see him again, and he's hanged, so his only escape was the suicide. So 
in the book itself, what is so horrible about the world? You know, it's there's a there's no individuality. There's complete loss of identity. The society fetishizes youth. Uh, there's sort of a chemically induced commercial perpetual cheeriness. Uh, you know, sex is for recreation um, only. Okay. <laughs> and everything in the book was Americanized. Uh, Pop, uh, chewing gum was popular in the day, so um, all this Huxley looking to sort of criticize the the onslaught of American culture in Europe uh, makes the drug deliveries or one of the drug delivery systems chewing gum, and the the whole feel of the world has this strange you know nineteen twenties flapper feel to it. Okay. So I mean, how how prescient is this, right? I mean, uh, loss of identity, fetishizing youth, you know, chemically induced perpetual cheeriness. You know, let's talk about, um, you know, Zoloft. Let's talk right. about <laughs> lithium. You know, let's talk about, uh, you know, Facebook where everybody's oh, you, the same. You, you, hey, you have, you're, you're 45 now. You have a little bit of pain in your shoulder. Take some aspirin. If aspirin doesn't work, how about Advil and combine the two? I, I, you're right. He's very prescient. Everything I, is Americanized, right? I mean, right. We, we can't live without American culture anymore. So that it's it, he reading, may not be too far off the mark on the year as well. Reading the book today, uh, it was shocking, and now I, I understand how it you know it makes it into the uh, the curriculum, uh, the high school yes. curriculum. It stays there. Uh, you know, there's a talk of um, genetic engineering. You know, creating a, a completely stratified society. Uh, there's the the social ritual that that controls um, everyone within the society. It's a shocking book to read. Like, I mean, it's not Stephen King horror, but it's, it's difficult at times to read, I found. Uh, I found that the characters, the, the world is real and, you know, easy to, uh, to, to get into. Uh, but the okay. characters were almost too prescriptive. Uh, I found, like, Aldous Huxley was too intent on pushing his agenda. So the characters didn't feel real. They just felt like they were delivering his lines. That would be my, uh, okay. my only criticism of the book. Okay. So, but, the, but the world is, is well fleshed out. And... The world is bizarre. Yeah. So in that sense, it's, um, it's astonishing to read. So, so the, fo- the focus is on the world and, and, and the, the one main character, well, the, I mean, yeah, I think the he's, savage. He's really trying to make a point. You know, I mean, this, right. is, this is what a, what, a, what a lot of science fiction can do, right, is, right. To, is to do criticism, which is expressly all this Huxley's intent, I think. And, uh, you know, to show us this, you know, nightmare world, you know, what could happen if. So he's accomplished that wonderfully. And, uh, yeah, like I say, the... Um, I could see it fitting well into a high school curriculum for, for just, just you know, the reasons. You, you've sold me, and I think I'm going to revisit this old high school read <laughs> at some point. That was, my, that was my thing this week. I just I wanted to you know, bring back one from the archives. You know, everybody's supposed to have read it, so if you have, I hope I've refreshed your memory. And if you missed it, you know, there's a reason why they make every kid read it I, in I high might school. have ran out and bought the Coles notes. <laughs> or if you're from the States, the Cribs notes on the this Cribs one. The Cribs notes, exactly. <laughs> okay, Paul, you got a, uh, something for us? Uh, I do, and you know what? We have a, a jingle here that's collected some dust on it. You got a brand new jingle for us. Well, it, it's been sitting there. We haven't done any uh, books in the genre. Hang on, here, there it is. Food and drink. <sighs> All you right, make, you're making me hungry, Paul. What do you got? Did <laughs> uh, you look at the picture on the cover there? Eh? Uh, this book is called America's Most Wanted Recipes Without the Guilt by Ron Douglas. Now he, he's a New York Times bestseller. He's done a bunch of these. Uh, America's Most Wanted Recipes. And this one in particular caught my eye. If you look through the book, each recipe is prefaced by which franchise restaurant you would find this item. Oh, that's novel. All right, so you'll go through, and it's uh, a lot of them are, are American, and we're Canadian, but uh, a lot of these franchises we, we're familiar with Olive Garden, Chi Chi's. Uh, For our American listeners, you have to understand that in Canada, we have one tenth the number of fast food right. outlets that you do. <laughs> it's not, I'm not even joking. It's true. It's true. Uh, so you go Old Spaghetti Factory, Olive Garden, uh, Red Lobster, 
there's tons. I can just flip through the book. Paul, answer one question for me. Taco Bell? I, I haven't seen any yet. Oh. I'm going to go through the book actually next week I'm, uh, for our, our recording when all three of us are back together. I'm going to make something in this book and bring it for us. Now, what makes this book unique is uh, there's one particular one I was, see, I was looking at in here. They have KFC, Secret Recipe, the chicken, but baked. Oh. So each one of these recipes in America's Most Wanted Recipes Without the Guilt is a calorie-reduced version of the restaurant, but without emulating the taste. the w- guilt. Right, without the guilt, without the cornstarch or corn syrup or, you know, the extra Mc- butter or cheesecake. McDonald's french fries, do you have to have, like, your own extruder? <laughs> yeah, you might. You might have to have a chemistry set. <laughs> no, but there might. Uh, there might be. A, you know, I haven't. There's no. I haven't seen. McDonald's there might be some guilt-free McDonald's French fry in there. Yes. <laughs> there, but uh, I'm going to take a look, and we'll, we'll revisit it next week as we're eating some of the goodies from from the book. I'm not going to promise that I eat if you make it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, interesting note on Ron Douglas. Uh, you know, I, I've I've seen his name on the top lists before, and uh, he's. He's not a chef. He's a former financial director for J.P. Morgan. Some men, you know, they're just uh, wide-ranging interests That's and right. uh, irrepressible uh, jack ambition. of all trades. Yes, <laughs> but we'll, we'll check that out next week, and we're going to move on. Book news. All right, Greg's not here this week, so we're going to have to fill in here. This is it. This is where the news. lifting gets heavy uh, for those of us when uh, we're missing our third chair. That's right. Uh, I got a couple items. Uh, the Lorian Hemingway short story competition winners were announced. Uh, one of our good friends on the website, uh, members, Alex Carrick, received an honorable mention for a second year in a, in a row. I got the uh, message from Alex. That's Congratulations. Right. Congratulations, Alex, for his short story, Caboose Follies, which is going to be in his third anthology of short stories. Four Scoops is over the top, which uh, should be published next week or two. Now, as far as the th- uh, three winners, third place, John T. Biggs of Oklahoma City, uh, for Soul Kisses, short story. Second place, Jennifer Adams of Birchenville, Pennsylvania, for the short story Girl on the Balcony. And first place was Darcy Bysouth of Edinburgh, Scotland, for Hold, her short story. This is an international composition. Uh, that, that's correct. Competition, I take it. Please uh, read one of the short stories, one of the winners, or maybe Alex is at Alex's, and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah. All right, and I got uh, Forbes.com revealed the top 10 highest earning authors for the past fiscal year. I'm going to run this one by you here, uh, Chris. How do authors do when the economy um, goes down the toilet? Right. That's right. And, and when, when book companies are concerned about, uh, you know, piracy and all that, just, just like the music Who's industry. number one? Number one is James Patterson, who tops the list at $84 million in the now, last fiscal year. We were talking about this earlier. Uh, for a man who, what did you say, Paul? For a man who publishes ten books a year? Yeah, you know what? I, I you know, I enjoy the Patterson novels, and and they are of good quality. So I'm not going to say that he's putting out crap, but you are going to. I am going to hint that he's not writing them. He did well. No, he he. Had, there are there is a team of writers working with him, <laughs> and I got to say, if you're putting out ten novels a year, Small how much of that writing is yours? You know, at this point, Patterson seems like he's becoming a franchise, and maybe he's just, you know, watering it down at this point. Even if, even if all the words aren't his, all the money is. That's right. <laughs> slow down, James. Slow down, James. You don't, you don't need another gold-plated Shark Tank. Uh, second place, we're looking at Danielle Steele, romance novelist with $35 billion in income. And then rounding out the top 10, of course, here, horror master Stephen King, $28 million, still, still going strong. 
Janet Ivanovich, 22 million. She writes uh, romances and mysteries. Uh, Twilight creator Stephanie Meyer, still so, yeah. going strong, Small 21 million. There, yeah. uh, the creator of Percy Jackson, the Olympians, the young adult series. Uh, Rick Riordan, 21 million. Suspense writer Dean Kuntz, love Kuntz. He does a lot of fun reads, $19 million. And John Grisham, 18 million. And the author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, scribe Jeff Kinney, 17 million. And at number 10, romance author Nicholas Sparks for 16 million. So what shocks me about that list, Paul, now that you've read it, is uh, first of all, the, the young adult authors are yes. scoring well, which, yes. I'm, which I'm a big fan of. And uh, I got to get into the romance writing books, apparently, if I want to make money as a day job. <laughs> That's right, or, or horror. Because Stephen King is on this list like every uh, year, even even years he doesn't write anything. Yeah, you know? I know his back catalog well. is so strong. But it's yeah, it's it's the romance writers that seem it doesn't really seem to matter. Like Stephen King is Stephen King, but romance writer, I mean, it just seems to be a list of them or a pile of them on that list, right? Yeah, it seem to be. yeah, it's, it's incredible, <laughs> you know. And uh, we actually, I I'm not going to give out her name yet, but we're, we're we are going to have someone doing some romance um, uh, reviews for us. Uh, it'll be coming up in a couple episodes. I have so. to say, we do a lot of, and I'm actually shocked to, to, to reflect, you know, I, I read a lot more science fiction than I realized that I did when I started doing reviews. Yeah, the show. you know, and, and it's true. And, and we really should diversify. I'm not saying we should. We can do whatever we want on the show. It's our show. That's right. But we well, would we, do well we, probably to expand our own reading we horizons. We're going to do our best to, to diversify in the future. So for, for a sure. laugh, for a laugh, and let's maybe keep this one in hand, uh, we should all agree to read a romance novel each and come into the show and do it. That sounds like an episode. That sounds like, like all of us do a Danielle Steele or something. Okay. And you know what? All those in favor? Okay. Motion carried. Motion carried. Sorry, Sorry Greg. Greg. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on to books on film and television. Okay. Uh, we spoke about Dark Tower being off the table. And uh, at the time I said, I'm not worried about it because uh, Ron Howard. Off won. of what table? Uh, the, the TV production table? Yes, the TV production and, and the three blockbuster film table. Uh, at the time I said, yeah, Ron Howard is pretty adamant about this. I remember this. This is when I was going on about how is it really a bad thing if, if a book doesn't make it to TV or film? <laughs> no, it's, it's not a bad thing, but uh, I would love to see this on the silver screen. It's back up, eh? Big screen. So Ron Howard is still pursuing the financing. He's adamant about making this his magnum opus, and he's going to do it. So he is looking for the money, and there is a rumor now that Netflix may be interested in footing some or all of this bill. So it's just a matter of money at this point. That would def- definitely be a, a rose in, um, in Netflix's bouquet if they could pull that one off. That's right. All right, I've got a list here of six movies coming next year, 2012, to the big screen. I'm wondering if any of these interest you at all, Chris? Good, let's go through the list. Let's do it. First one, The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. The Dr. Seuss stuff hasn't translated on film well yet. Now, you know what, uh, and a lot of it has gone straight to like, you know, VHS tape and DVD. It's the kind of thing that you, that you keep around to keep, the kids are, you know... Kids need something to do. You throw it in the VCR for the 500th time. Okay. You know? That's pretty much it. Yeah. But uh, this looks like it's going to be to the big, big, big screen. Uh, Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. No surprise there. No, no surprise at all there. The Life of Pi by Yann Martel. Have you read that one? I have not. I have read that one. And let me say that I am surprised. The, the premise of the book, Greg. Uh, Greg's not here, man. The premise of the book, Paul is uh, a boy gets abandoned in a lifeboat with a live tiger. 
Okay. Put that one on film. That, you know what? That's awesome. <laughs> this could sell. I'm not joking. Like a, a freighter goes down and on the freighter is a bunch of zoo animals right? and a small boy and a, and, a, and a Bengal tiger end up on the same lifeboat. Wow. That's, that's all I'll say. And I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm really <laughs> eager to see how that one makes it to film. Uh, the next one I want to see if, if um, Peter Jackson can bring this one to the screen and not make me fall asleep in the theater. Uh, I'll, I'll personally fly the to Hobbit, what? New Zealand and shake his hand. The Hobbit coming yeah, next year. Yeah. Is that like going to be one or two movies now, or three movies? Or yeah. uh, Well, it's listed, as one, it's listed as one movie here. I'm not sure. I've had enough of... Uh, I, I appreciate Peter Jackson's work, but I've had enough of the Lord of the Rings series personally. And uh, back to high school reading, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's another one I never read in high school. Maybe that'll be my next throwback read. Next one is the, I believe this is the first Bourne movie not written by Ludlum. It's written by Eric von Lustbader, uh, The Bourne Legacy. Any, uh, any idea who's cast on that one yet? We, I, Matt no, Damon's see, this is where project, we miss right? Greg. This is where we miss Greg. Greg would know who's cast Greg would and know. who the craft service people are, what kind of French fries they'll be serving on the set and, and all that. Absolutely. Okay, Greg, get on that for next week. We need to know who's cast for the, the new Bourne movie. That's right. You know what we got next? What's on? We got the Think Geek item of the week. If I'm looking at my uh, show schedule, right? I know. I'm just trying to find the fucking jingle. You ever, you ever go to a, to a uh, live music show and the band has a set list taped to one of the speakers? Yeah. That's pretty much how the show runs here. That's right, folks. Here we go. The Think Geek item of the week from thinkgeek.com. All right. This week's Think Geek is uh, something that I am so going to buy. It's the Lord of the Rings 50-year anniversary edition. It is normally $100. It's on sale for $79. It's all of the books put together as Tolkien originally envisioned as one book. Talk about a book you could kill someone with. Uh, what did I, I think that my last words out of that last segment were, I've had enough of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it, this one, if you enjoyed Lord of the Rings, the, the, the word on the street is that this is the finest quality edition of lord of the rings ever uh, published so we're, we're talking about like there's like a velvet bookmark uh great stock on the paper it just looks great i'm definitely getting it and that's why i made it this week's things thinking i, I will take week. a look at it when you buy it but I'll, all right i'm gonna stick with my old uh, paperback you know <laughs> green brown and navy uh, copy <laughs> nice and you can get that item just by going to paulthebookguy.com slash thinkgeek and this was this week's Item of the week from ThinkGeek.com. So we use the the creepier of our two science fiction drop-ins. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other one has a theremin and sounds more space-like. This one was yeah a little bit more haunting. Appropriate for the book you're going to bring. I have got Oryx and Crake. Uh, oh, by yeah. our very own uh, uh, Canadian author, Margaret Atwood. Canada's own Margaret Atwood. Uh, I have not read any Margaret Atwood at all uh, prior to this book, and I have to say I enjoyed this one very, very much. Uh, Oryx and Crake. Um, a crake is, uh, a redneck crake is an Australian bird that is uh, now extinct, I believe. And uh, a cra- an Oryx, rather, is, a, is an African antelope. Okay. Uh, in the book, uh, Oryx and Crake are... Godlike figureheads for a new human species. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Thus, the creepy uh, science fiction. Thus, the creepy jingle? science okay. fiction. The uh, the book opens up um, in a destroyed post-apocalyptic world, 
the end of the world as we know it? The end of the world as we know it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the end of the world as we know it books. <laughs> yes. And uh, we meet this, this race of sort of new humans that are completely unlike us. And their shepherd is a, a guy named Snowman. And uh, it's from, we learn later on in the book, that he's called himself or nicknamed himself the Abominable Snowman. And that's been shortened to Snowman. Ah. So, but Snowman is a proper human being, as you and I would know. Okay. Uh, so the book is done uh, in flashback. It's, it's the, the memories of this snowman character. And uh, his memories bring us to the point uh, where we find him shepherding this new race of human species. So snowman uh, meets a futuristic world near future. Margaret Atwood, what I loved about the book was uh, she looks at current trends and exaggerates them and extrapolates them slightly. Yeah, having read uh, a bit of uh, Margaret Atwood's work, I would say that even when she delves into science fiction, you could more appropriately call it predictive yeah, yeah, fiction, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was she really... doesn't go to... The most fun about it was that it's what I really appreciated, but there's almost like a black sense of humor about, you know, listen, this is where we're heading, you know? And it's right. tongue-in-cheek. This, do you guys really want this to happen? So, you know, one of the major themes in the book is, you know, education. Education becomes a, a purely uh, technical enterprise. And so... Uh, arts and uh, writing are, you know, disparaged in the culture where the uh, the engineers and the scientists are, are elevated. Uh, Education is also strictly controlled by, you know, commercial interests rather than uh, okay. for the sake of learning itself, right? So these are all, you know, themes that we have to contend with today. And Margaret Atwood is just showing us, you know, in, in an exaggerated sense of what it might look like in the near future. So at the the corporations also control sort of everywhere where we live. Uh, the gated communities are owned by the corporations. The corporations educate the scientists and the engineers uh, that construct and build our world, and they live inside the gated communities. And then outside the gated communities are sort of the, the regular population. So, so this is of the world. kind of like in Snow Crash, where you have the little mini nation states and the- something similar. Okay. Something similar. So uh, our hero is a an ad copy guy. So he's basically got a degree in English. So he's Okay. <laughs> barely, barely worthwhile in the in the new modern world where science and engineering rules. Not, not marketable skills. Not marketable skills. But his childhood friend turns out to be the archetypal scientist engineer. He, this this guy is this fellow is so brilliant. Um, he's he's a biogeneticist, bioengineer uh, that he actually engineers the destruction of the world as we know it. Creates a new species and saves our intrepid hero expressly for the purpose of shepherding his new species that he creates. Wow. Yeah, so involved in all this is a love triangle, um, <laughs> which kind of drives things forward. The characters are, are extraordinary. Uh, our, our brilliant scientist is, is uh, he starts out as a bright kid, but clearly ends up a mad scientist and, and Atwood handles that transition very carefully. Nice. Uh, our, our hero, um, our English graduate, English major graduate, the quality of his life, his life is not something that I think any of us would enjoy. And, and Margaret Atwood definitely has fun sort of portraying uh, his, his sort of dissolute existence in this, in this, you know, deteriorating world. And then uh, the third character in the love triangle is, uh, unbelievable character she's essentially a, a, a third world sex slave uh that are super mad scientists as teenage boys they sort of become these this pair of teenage boys they sort of become infatuated with her in high school but this mad scientist guy goes and finds her okay <laughs> brings her to his to his mad scientist lab and uses her 
uh, to educate his new super species of humanoids. It's just, it's it sounds fantastic, but it's wonderfully and humorously written. I found so the the, the love triangle, of course, ends in tragedy. Uh, the world is destroyed in a massive um, sex virus that our mad scientist engineers and his overall objective is to uh, preserve intelligent life in a, in a deteriorating society. So he, he pulls it upon himself to, you know, crush everything that exists and introduce, you know, a new form of intelligence and a new, an, an, another character destroying the world for, for good purposes, for good purposes. Right. It was all, he, he meant so he well. Meant well. <laughs> <laughs> so like I say, the, the way that, uh, Atwood comes at it with this sort of this bleak sense of humor and the, the commentary is cutting, and the uh, the world that she creates is very vivid. Um, there, it's a world of, of uh, dominated by bioengineering. So you're introduced to like these fun things like pigoons, and pigoons are basically balloon-like pigs where they breed human organs. Nice. So they're they're super swollen pigs that are full of livers and kidneys and, and tissue for human harvest. Um, now, a lot of this stuff is happening now. Like I, I know that some ah, hospitals see, have pigs in them. Absolutely. Used for so many different oh, purposes. Know, absolutely. This is actually happening. Right, including There's, like blood transfusions. Yes. Like, a large modern-day hospital has many farms somewhere on it. Like, so this is what Aqua is having fun with, literally yeah. just having fun with. So you also meet rock hunks, which is a cross between a raccoon and a skunk, you know, and it's the ideal uh, pet. So if you're, if you're rich and affluent and you live in one of these gated communities that's owned by the corporation, then you, you'll be fortunate enough to have a rock hunk as a pet. So it's, it's a lot of fun to read, great universe, great characters. Very fulfilling story. So I, I, You know what? I, I love all of Margaret Atwood's universes that she creates because they're just... A, Tiny bit off from ours. It's There's something dark about them, always, or at least in this book. And, and for our Audible listeners, uh, here's a short click from the audiobook. One lens is missing, but they're better than nothing. He undoes the plastic bag. There's only a single mango left. Funny. He remembered more. The ants have got in, even though he tied the bag as tightly as he could. Already they're running up his arms, the black kind, and the vicious little yellow kind. Surprising what a sharp sting they can give, especially the yellow ones. He rubs them away. It is the strict adherence to daily routine that tends towards the maintenance of good morale and the preservation of sanity, he says out loud. He has the feeling he's quoting from a book. Some obsolete, ponderous directive written in aid of European colonials running plantations of one kind or another. He can't recall ever having read such a thing, but that means nothing. There are a lot of blank spaces in his stub of a brain where memory used to be. Rubber plantations, coffee plantations, jute plantations. What was jute? They would have been told to wear solar topis, dress for dinner, Refrain from raping the natives. It wouldn't have said raping. Refrain from fraternizing with the female inhabitants. Or put some other way. He bets they didn't refrain, though. Nine times out of ten. Hello, everybody. This is Jimmy from FreeHollowBooks.com, where we give away a free hollow book every month. And you're listening to Paul the Book Guy. Audio dramas. All right. Uh, this week I listened to a short audio drama 
one of the, probably the classic audio drama, Orson Welles' adaptation of War of the Worlds for radio. I love that piece. Brilliant. I've heard it a couple times. Brilliant. And I could listen to it again. And, and folks, uh, for those of you not in the know, what happened was Orson Welles adapted uh, War of the Worlds uh, in a way that it sounded, for the most part of it, other than the first minute or two, where he presents that it's an audio play, it's presented as if it's live news, breaking has, news. Has journalism. You know, has right. live breaking journalism. A large silver globe has just landed. And, and people at the time, uh, there was a, it's been over-exaggerated in the media uh, how much of a panic it caused. But uh, through coincidence in some cities, there was a power failure at that moment. And the power failure happened just after they explained it was a radio drama. So people were, you know, powers out, turn on the radios, and all of a sudden they hear some guy reporting live and the city's being burned, it's being burned, you know. So it did cause some panic. I'm going to play a I short think, clip from I think, Audible. I think that it, like, suicides could directly oh. be attributed to this yes, broadcast, actually. It, it was, and it, it was just a matter of people turning in, tuning in late, believing that the world was being assaulted by an alien invasion force and just jumping out the window. Right, and, and, and in some cases, other stations tied into this and they were listening and then they sort of like you know one thing led to another so the feel of the whole broadcast is very very compelling right and i i read a a story about um the gentleman who did the tonight show before johnny carson jack parr is that his name i have no idea the gentleman who used to uh, just before he uh, started the tonight show he was at the phones at one of these television stations and just trying to assure people look it's not the end of the world <laughs> please folks Here, here's a quick clip uh, from the radio drama. It's only one hour long. So it's the kind of thing, you can, if you have a one-hour commute, you can listen to it and just imagine that you're back in, at the time when this was on the air and, and just imagine the panic it's, this it's thing It's even caused. fun just to listen with the it's kids. It's brilliant. But yeah, listen with the kids. It's brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. 
Well, I hardly know where to begin. Paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um... Um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say? Uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious... Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, uh, would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, cousin. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half chosen and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmot, and then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. The car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring stories now are venturing near the edge. Now, in related news... On the topic of alien invasions? On the invasions. topic of alien invasions? No, on the topic of the 1938 War of the Worlds uh, radio drama by Orson yes. Welles. Yes. There's a lady named Annie Jacobson who's written a book called Area 51. Tell me, Paul, what happened in Area 51? Well, according to Annie Jacobson, now, this is a nonfiction uh, expose, we'll call it. Journalism. Uh, wow. Journalism. She is a respected journalist. She has a source in the book, a former defense company employee from the company EG&G. Uh, now, EG&G handled a lot of the U.S. government's most sensitive projects uh, back in the time of the Roswell incident. And he joined the company in 1978, and he has inside scoop. Now, What is he telling uh, Ms. Jacobs? What he's telling her is that Stalin, Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> uh, upon reading the news of the hysteria caused by the War of the World's uh, radio broadcast, the panic, right. Right. he decided that it might be a good idea to stage something in the United States of America that would cause even more panic. He figured they were gullible enough that he could pull his own he, stunt? Yes, sir. And According to Mrs. Jacobson, he worked with Joseph Mengele, 
Dr. Death. Death. Dr. Death. Evil Nazi scientist who uh, got absorbed by Russia. Did he get pulled out of, out of Russia? Or pulled he got, to Russia? He yeah. got pulled to Russia. He, was, uh, he went to the Russian side. And he was the one who did all these horrible things. I'm not going to mention it on the show, but ah, the horrible things he did. Med- to human medical, experience, medical experiments on human beings. Yeah. Right. Just despicable behavior. But uh, the idea is that, coupled with the flying wing technology that they took, which the uh, Americans also took, which later became their uh, stealth fighter. There were experiments, yeah, with flying wings, yeah. Uh, he took that technology, built a drone mm-hmm. that was piloted uh, at the time by a radio control from another Russian plane. Remotely piloted drone plane. Right. Okay. So they put like explosives in this thing, put two young teenagers who doctor death, you know, he doesn't get that name for no reason, had done horrible things to them with plutonium and radiation to make them look inhuman oh my goodness so now you've got this flying saucer a mysterious flying wing right. stuffed a with a plane that no one's seen before it's a round flying saucer shape <laughs> with these two poor kids in it one plus full with explosives one plus one equals roswell right so oh, the idea was to crash goodness. this thing into a major american city <laughs> blow it up detonate the explosives <laughs> so you basically would have this crash landed ufo that with blew up, probably take out a few buildings with it, and you'd have remnants of these inhuman-looking people and cause a great panic across the United States. And Stalin figures that America's gullible enough to... Right, after reading all the, the panic and about the World of the Worlds broadcast. So I'm, I, when I read this one, I bring it to the table, Chris. Uh, I am going to read it. It looks interesting. I'm, I am going to play the fiction jingle. I just appreciate to... <laughs> that, actually. <laughs> you know, Thank you very much. But it sounds like a great read, even if you just... You know, start if she off. can connect all those dots. If she I'm can connect all those to... dots, I won't play the fiction jingle. Okay. I'll play Fair the enough. nonfiction. Fair but uh, right now, I'm just going to read it as an interesting that's, story. That's a hell of a story. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, she can connect the dots. Short stories. Fathers, a literary anthology, is a collection of 49 essays and poems focusing on fathers. And the gentleman who put this together is Andre Girard, and he's with us on the line now from Vancouver. Hello, Andre. Hello, Chris. Paul. How are you doing? This is Chris. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Glad to be here chatting with you. First question, uh, Andre. We were at a loss because we have all the jingles for all the... uh, genres that exist and then we, we have a science fiction jingle we have a, a cooking sh- uh, book jingle we've got you know fiction jingles but we don't have a patermoir jingle yeah explain to us uh, what this uh, new genre is all about well it uh, it's my own creation or at least my the name is my creation that the genre itself uh was something that i i became aware of uh, when I was researching and, and looking for essays and poems about fathers. And I discovered that there are hundreds of books written by children about their fathers. This year alone, there's probably been over a dozen published. Uh, William Golding's daughter published a book. Williams Dyron, Cary Grant's daughter has published one. The British playwright Michael Frayne. And that's this year alone. So it's, a, it's a definitely a genre. A lot of people, and I guess partly because of the baby boom generation, as we age, we're trying to put down our thoughts about our fathers and who we are. So I decided author memoir, patrimoire. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, I had no idea that I was looking in the end of the anthology that you included a, a, a bunch of, of patrimoires. Uh, it does seem to be a, a lively genre. We noticed that um, there were, you know, living and dead authors included in the anthology. Did you get a chance to talk about the project with any of the living authors you included? I corresponded with several by email. Uh, Michael Longley uh, 
in Ireland. Part of it was I, I had to secure permissions for all of these. Ah, yes. And it, that was a really difficult and expensive proposition. But Michael Longley, for instance, liked the project so much, he said, go ahead, use it, use the rights for free. Um, Rita Dove, the, the Pulitzer Prize poet from the United States, uh, I corresponded with her because I wanted electronic rights uh, as well as print rights, and, and she generously gave me those. And she thought uh, it was a, a fascinating uh, project, and uh, Alan Bennett was somebody else who helped me, uh, the British playwright. Which, even, author, which, author gave, which author gave you the most trouble? <laughs> <laughs> uh, two come to mind uh, one inadvertently and that was Michael Ignatieff because I approached him uh, oh earlier last year and negotiated with his British agent and then at the last minute uh, Michael's political team took over and I had to start over again they weren't fond of the but project when uh, his political team found out they might have been nervous but Michael stepped in, and, and he, in the end, he gave me the rights uh, for 50% less than the British agent had been asking for. So I, I was very appreciative. Yeah, that's spectacular. Yeah, that's yes. excellent, yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the other uh, one that uh, I had problems with was Adrian Rich, and she refused me permission. Uh, partly, I'm, I'm speculating, but perhaps because she did not want to be defined by her father, even though she had written a lot about him. And, ah. and uh, she's, she has a history of, of being very blunt and direct, uh, famously turning down Bill Clinton for a, a Congressional Medal of Honor because she didn't like his politics. So, you know, <laughs> that's, I, that's bold. You know, stands her ground, yeah. Yeah. So, and in the end, I, I just, I, I kept my introductions to her pieces. I, I kept her as part of the book uh, without publishing her poem or her essay. Okay. But I, I felt she was a major literary figure who I wanted to acknowledge and, and yes. she had thematic things that I wanted to include in the book. Excellent. You left that in there. Perfect. So uh, a quick question, Andre. What literary character or, or piece of literature do you think that uh, your, your two children, I believe you have, would attribute to you? I have a, a son and a daughter. Uh, my son's uh, 20, or coming up 20, and my daughter's 22. And uh, I'm not sure who they would see me as, or which of the many fathers. Uh, certainly not Winston Churchill's father. Who, <laughs> That's a tough standard who, to live up to. <laughs> yeah, who neglected him. And, and uh, they're... I, I guess it would depend on the day. You know, there there are days when my certainly there were days when when my my daughter would have lumped me in with Sylvia Plath's father. <laughs> she, she, she and I knocked heads quite savagely for a while, and and there were days I'm sure when she uh, wished I were dead. So uh, some of the poems in the book. Uh, like Sylvia Plath or, or John Behrman, who, who talks about digging up his father and, and hacking away at the corpse, are quite angry. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Others uh, are very loving or, or thoughtful or caring, and, and uh, like Margaret Atwood uh, taking care of her dying father. You know, I, I hope my children, by the time I reach that stage, will, will be of a similar mind. Will be in the similar mind, of course. 
Uh, is there yeah. is there a particular piece in the book that uh, is most reminiscent for you of your father? I. Uh, Yes, I, I would say so. Uh, Philip Roth. Uh, Philip Roth, okay. Yeah, it's an excerpt from his patrimoire from a, a book uh, about his father called Patrimony. And his father is a, a very crusty character, bloody-minded often, but still lovable. Uh, a man who, when uh, his wife died, he immediately started packing up her possessions, uh, disposing of her clothes while the, the mourners were still in the house. And dad, dad has done similar things and, and <laughs> is fiercely independent at age 91. Uh, my brother and I often comment about how similar he is to Philip Roth's father, in fact. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a legacy. Yeah. So uh, thanks very much for the interview. Uh, I just have one more quick question for you. Now that this project's um, finished and in the uh, and out in stores, uh, what is uh, what's the next thing you're working on? Well, a number of people have, have encouraged me to do a book of matrimoires or, or mother essays and poems. But ah, that yeah. seems a little too obvious, doesn't it? The companion, <laughs> it is. The companion it is, book. And it, yes. it would be too much. Well, two things. One, there's not the material. Uh, I think fathers are more mysterious to their children and, and so have generated more... Uh, material more mythical characters uh, fathers and secondly it would be too similar so i'm i'm thinking of a book of poetry a, a book that would combine my own poems with uh poems that i like but but older poems poems for which i wouldn't have to get the permissions <laughs> yes and this this uh wrangling up rights must be extremely difficult and expensive Idiot. yes Yes, it, it's very time-consuming because you, you send letters off and emails, and it's very hard to get answers. Some publishing houses are not terribly efficient, and you just have to be very, very persistent. And then you also need a big pocketbook because the rights for individual pieces uh, can go into the thousands of dollars. So it, it, it is much more expensive and, and much more onerous than I, I anticipated going in. Well, Andre, we're glad that you uh, went to the effort and the expense to put this together. It's a book that I, I recommend to anyone who is a father or a, has a father. It's a beautiful piece to keep on the bookshelf and just pull down occasionally. There's much to meditate on. And thank you very much, Andre, for joining us. And we'll have you back on uh, sometime in the future when uh, your poetry book comes out. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Great to talk to you. Well, we made it through a whole episode without Greg. I don't want to do this again, Chris. I hope it's he's tough. back next it's week. It's tough. It's a lot easier when we've got three, three bodies around the table. That's right. Three brains are better than two. The jokes are better, too, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week, folks. Uh, we got to take, take care on the, on the climb down Book Mountain, uh, Paul. Uh, watch out for crash-landed aliens. <laughs> That's right. Look, look out for those Area 51 aliens. Bye, everybody. I'm Paul the Book Guy. See you later. I'm Chris the Book Guy. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary.